Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Morning, South. My name is Jessica Rust. I'm the Director of Pastoral Care here at South. And that does not mean that my job is to take care of the pastors. It does mean that I get to help meet the needs of our church and our community, whatever those needs might look like. And it means that I get to share with you here this morning. And this Sunday is the second Sunday of Advent. And if you're not really familiar with Advent, it's a season of the year that we as followers of Jesus get to slow down instead of joining in the Christmas rush and practice waiting and anticipating the coming of Jesus. The writing Bobby Gross says, Advent is a season for waiting. We wait for the coming of God. We need him to come. Our world is messed up and we are messed up. We lament our condition and long for God to set things right, to make us better. So we pray and we watch for signs of his presence. We do all we know to do so that we are open and ready. God is coming. Whereas Alex told us last week, Advent is here, let the waiting begin. Advent is here, let the waiting begin. This morning we let the Advent candles, we sing a Christmas song like we did last week. There are certain things that we do during Advent that mark it as a unique season that's set apart from the rest of the year. And even if you don't really practice Advent, maybe you had no idea what it was until you walked in today, there are probably traditions or practices that you have, whether yourself, with your family, friends, roommates, or you've had in the past that mark the Christmas season and the holiday season as being different and set apart from the rest of the year. Um, I love Christmas music, so as soon as Thanksgiving is over, that's my cue to pull out my special playlist and listen to my heart's content at least until, like, New Year's. I find that's acceptable. Most of you probably have some special recipes that you pull out only during this time of year, or there's a drink that you like, or a food item that you like that's really only available now. Like, for me, it's the peppermint mocha at Starbucks. I'm going to get one after all this is done. (laughs) Or you might have decorations that you've pulled out from your basement or the attic or your closet that are only going to show up during December. For a lot of us, it's Christmas lights. Our neighborhood is really, really into all the holidays and decorating for all the holidays, so most people's lights are already up. Um, Two doors down from us or three doors down from us, There's one family that's like really into it. Their house is covered. It's all synced up to music. So if you turn your dials on your car to a particular frequency, you can hear everything. They added a 20-foot Santa this year. Like this is really their thing. Last year, we were the only family on our side of the street that didn't have lights. It was lights, us, everyone else with more lights. So this year, we at least got two strands of lights. So we're not like sticking out like a sore thumb. Lights might not really be our family's thing, but we do have a nativity scene. This one's ours. We got felt, so my daughter could participate without like breaking anything. 
you might have nicer versions like these. But whatever kind of nativity you have or you might have seen before, they're pretty recognizable for what they are. They have the same characters. They're usually arranged more or less in the same way. Uh, my mic is doing something funny, so I'll try and fix that for you. But there's always Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. You will probably have some animals, probably have a shepherd, uh, maybe the angel, and you have the wise men or the magi. And we're so familiar with this story, which in some ways is good because we know what's happening. But familiarity, especially if you've heard the Christmas story over and over again, year after year after year, can sometimes make us forget just how unique the situation actually was. I mean, if you think about the wise men, it's random guys showing up to give a gift to a toddler. And if random guys showed up at your house with very expensive gifts for your child or grandkids or nieces or nephews, you would have a few questions at minimum. And yet this is the situation that Mary and Joseph and the Magi found themselves in. And it's significant enough that Matthew, the author of this gospel account where this takes place, wants us to know and takes the time to write out that it happened. So who were the Magi? Well, in the Old Testament, Magi is a specific term that refers to the priestly class of a people group called the Medes. In New Testament times, it's a little bit more of a general term, referring to men who used magic and astrology to try to discern what was happening in the world. Um, some of them used it for a little bit more of a scammy, sketchy type of purpose. Others were genuinely trying to understand what was happening and how to respond rightly. And the magi of this story fall more into the latter category of trying to understand what God might be doing. Matthew 2, verse 1, tells us, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now Matthew says they came from the east, Scholars have theorized that this could be Persia, it could be Babylon, it could be Arabia. Um, all three of those locations would have had pretty sizable Jewish populations at the time, which is how the Magi probably would have heard about the Messiah in the first place in these prophecies. But ultimately, we don't really know. We don't even know for sure that there were three of them. That's a good guess because they bring three gifts, but it's really a guess. And yet... Matthew tells us that they traveled all of this way from whatever location they started in to find this king of the Jews. And travel, as most of us are probably familiar with, is a pretty emotionally and physically and monetarily intensive investment. I mean, if you're flying by plane, you have to buy the ticket in the first place, you have to pack your bags, Depending on where you're going, you might need to make a special purchase or two. You have to get to the airport, pay for parking, or pay the friend who blessed you with their time and energy to get you to the airport. And then you still have to get through security, which is its own saga. You actually get on the plane and actually make it to your location before you can enjoy your trip. And then to get back, you have to do all of those things again. And car isn't really that much less of an investment. You have to pack the car. 
you have to make sure you have gas so you can get there. You're probably going to need to stop at least one more time for gas. You need snacks, you need an entertainment, especially if you're not driving alone. If it's a long trip, you need to make sure you have some backup so you don't fall asleep while you're driving and you can make it there in one place. And again, you have to turn around and come all the way back. And imagine making this trip of thousands of miles without any of those technological advancements that we have to make it a fast trip. They're investing potentially years of their lives to find this child. Um, by the time they get there, Jesus is at least one, maybe two years old. And yet they've set aside their everyday lives because there's something so compelling about this Messiah, that it's worth it to them. I apologize for the mic problems. And when they get there to the end of their journey, they end up in Jerusalem, which if you're looking for a king is a pretty good guess. You would think that a king is going to be born somewhere important, like a capital city. But instead of finding the Messiah, the new king, they find the current king, King Herod. And there are a few kings named Herod in the Bible. This one's called Herod the Great. And he's called Great because he fits this checklist that people had at the time of what would make someone a good king. He was known especially for all his building projects. All of the red dots on this map are places where he decided to build some kind of something, whether that was an amphitheater or even the whole city. His most famous project is the temple in Jerusalem, refurbishing that. He was also known to be a good orator, which was a really key trait that a leader was supposed to have at the time. He was able to squash rebellion and keep peace. He was able to stay on the good side of Rome, which was both very difficult to do and important for peace and prosperity if your country lived under Roman rule at the time. But Herod is also known for being extremely, extremely paranoid. He didn't inherit the throne. He was given the title of ruler in 37 BC by the Romans. And without having that backup birthright that he could point to and say, yes, I deserve to be here, that put him in a really precarious position that he was aware of and felt for his whole rule. So he sp spent his whole reign looking out for people who wanted to take that away from him. Before this Matthew 2 story had happened, he had actually already killed one of his wives and two of his sons because he saw them as threats. And now how are, here are these travelers who show up in his city who are asking around for a king that's not him. So verse 3 tells us that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. And disturbed, this is the NIV, it's actually kind of a mild translation um, a better phrase would be um, he was frightened or agitated. This idea of a rival king isn't something that's just kind of bothersome to him, like a fly that he can maybe swat at, but if he doesn't get it, it ultimately doesn't matter. This is something that's excuse me, terrifying to him, like being confronted with a lion, and he needs some kind of response. But he also, like the Magi, needs to find out where this child is before he can respond. So he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, this is a total lie, but Herod does need the Magi to believe that he's on their side so he can get this information that he needs. And Herod is actually responding to the idea of another king in pretty much exactly the way you would expect an ancient king to respond to that kind of information. Good policy at the time wasn't you let any threats to your throne potentially come and take over your throne. Good policy was you eliminate the threat. And Herod is already planning to do this. If you read farther in chapter 2, you see him try to carry out this plan to eliminate Jesus. Um, and it sounds kind of extreme to us, and it is really an extreme reaction. But I wonder if part of the reason why it sounds like such an extreme reaction is because we, as mostly modern-day Americans, and a British person, <laughs> um, struggle more often than not to really see Jesus as a king who is offering up his own kingdom that does threaten everything that Herod has worked for. But a king with his own kingdom is the expectation that the people of Israel had for their Messiah. In one of the most famous messianic passages that's also quoted a lot at Christmas, Isaiah 9, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In another passage, Zechariah 9.9, it says that the Messiah rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus does this exact thing when he enters Jerusalem the week before he dies. And there are people there waving palm branches and shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they're saying this and responding in that way because they know that by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is claiming to be this Messiah king that they have been longing and waiting for. And Matthew has actually been setting up his whole book up to this point for us to make the same conclusion. He starts chapter one with this long genealogy, which to us might seem like a really, really boring way to start a book, but he's trying to make the point that Jesus is descended from King David and therefore the rightful king of Israel. Earlier in chapter two, the Magi called Jesus the king of the Jews. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is a greater king than Herod the Great. And yet, it can be, yeah, it can be hard for us to accept that Jesus 
fulfills this kingship in the same way that people in the first century were so eager to accept it. And Jesus is kind of a surprising king. We said that Herod was great earlier because he fit those checkboxes. He had the palace and the territory. He did all the building projects. He made his country look really impressive, more impressive than it had looked for years. He was the good orator. He was the good politician. And those are things that even now we look for as leaders and politicians and the people that we want to lead us. Those are the kinds of things that we think make someone king material. But Jesus didn't really fit most of those checkboxes. He never claimed for himself a physical territory. He didn't build himself a palace or an amphitheater or a seaside town. He wasn't, well, he was probably a good speaker, just judging on his response, but he wasn't a politician. Instead of claiming power that was offered to him, he said things like, my kingdom's not of this world. When people wanted to make him king by force in John 6 because he fed them, he withdrew and continued his ministry elsewhere. Instead of grasping power and acclaim, Philippians 2 says, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Instead of grasping power, he submits himself to death, takes on our sin so that we might live and dies. And instead of remaining dead and remaining in the tomb like every other king in history, he's raised to life on the third day. And we believe that he will come again one day to fully establish in completeness his kingdom that is already here and already begun, but not yet complete. And it's this king, this Messiah, that the Magi leave everything and travel all of those miles and all of those years to find. And after they heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Again, this is kind of a milder translation. A better one is they rejoiced with great joy. They weren't just like excited or pleased. They were so overflowing with joy that they could not contain it. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts that you would give to a king. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The Magi find this king that they have been looking for, and their response is worship. Matthew wants us to know that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's offering this kingdom that he claims he's offering, the proper response is worship. Jesus is a better king with a better kingdom, and the proper response is worship. Then worship is actually how that Philippians 2 passage ends. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Scripture tells us that the response to true kingship is worship. And maybe that feels really difficult to you right now. We tend to associate worship with feelings of joy or being like in the right mindset. And for a lot of us, probably many of us in this room, this season is actually the least joyful. Especially if your year has been just one thing after another after another, you might not feel any of that joy that the Magi did. Maybe you lost a loved one this year, or Christmas and the holidays just brings that memory back and you're dealing with grief. Maybe winter just does a number on your mental health and you are struggling to find hope in anything right now. Maybe you lost your job and finances are tight and you are trying to figure out how you can provide a good holiday season for your family or anything for your family. Maybe you have some kind of circumstance that I just haven't even touched on, but you don't think that you can get to that place at the Magi where you're rejoicing with great joy. And I would say that's probably okay. That your feelings and your circumstances are legitimate, but I would also suggest that worship has less to do with how we feel in the moment and more to do with showing up in the first place to affirm that yes, we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he claimed to have done. He offers the kingdom he claims to offer. And even if you're struggling to believe it, you're willing to try. If God is working your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.